You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alan Chews is a book critic for NPR's All Things Considered, a writer and a novelist. His latest novel is To Catch the Lightning. His newest book is a collection of travel essays titled A Trance After Breakfast. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Again, my pleasure, Rick. We're here to talk about the second book in your series of textbooks that you've written in collaboration with Nicholas Delvanco. This one's about poetry. And it strikes me that poetry is a very different form from fiction. I know that you're a noted fiction writer and you've got a great fiction background. Where are you in the world of poetry? Well, I love poetry. Uh, You know, Faulkner said all novelists are failed poets. So so I guess uh, Nick Delbanco and I began with that premise, that if we could possibly do it, we would reduce everything to a beautiful lyric of about, what does Poe say, 18 lines. Uh, You know, Poe says the the goal of the poet should be to write a a poem about no more than 18 lines long about the death of a beautiful woman. What more can you ask for? <laughs> I can't imagine. Right. So, uh, you know, I've always loved poetry, and um, and I had to remind myself what I knew about it as uh, we worked on this volume of the three volumes of fiction, poetry, and drama. Uh, there's a lot more material you have to go through when you're doing a collection of poetry. There's a, a lot more, as it were, cannon fodder. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't think of that pun. Um, you know, when, when we were working with the fiction volume, we had a, a goal of about, uh, including about 65 stories. Um, or, and so it was difficult to eliminate stories. But with poetry, we had a, you know, a range of some 400 poems. So the only thing we, we had to exclude because of space uh, was uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey and, <laughs> and maybe Paradise Lost. Um, and and a lot of Chaucer. Basically, we can include anything else we wanted. So, um, you know, the, the the field was wide open, um, and and so we had a great deal of fun uh, figuring out what we wanted to include. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about putting this together. You're putting this together with Nicholas Del Banco, mm-hmm. um, and you guys aren't in the same city, are you? Or no, but we met a lot. I mm-hmm. mean, we. Uh, I mean, the great thing uh, about PCs is that you can collaborate in ways that uh, would have been uh, very, very physically difficult uh, in the olden days, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we, it's as if we could sit side by side and write draft after draft and comment on each other's drafts as, as we worked al- along the way. Uh, so we met in New York, and, um, you know, in our editorial offices of the publisher at McGraw-Hill, and uh, Nick would come to Washington, D.C., where I live, and I would go to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he lived. And so, um, actually, we miss each other a lot. We've been <laughs> working on this for five and a half years, which is kind of like a marriage. Um, <laughs> a marriage made at McGraw-Hill. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we're very old friends, and uh, it was wonderful to collaborate with him. Uh, he did tell me that when he was up in New York, uh, at one point, the uh, the, the head publisher of the whole shebang stepped out of his office and said, Nick, he said, how are you doing? And he said, listen, can I ask you something, Nick? This is about four years into the project. He said, are you and Alan still friends? 
and the answer was yes, and the answer is yes. And uh, you know, it, it, we, it was amazing that you know, but we worked very well together and had a great time doing it, and we missed doing it. Well, uh, tell us a little bit about some of the, you know, you must not have had been in agreement on everything. And so how did you, or did you divvy the work up? You take the romantics, I'll take the moderns. Well, it's not that we didn't agree about everything, but, uh, you know, I don't know everything. I don't know as much about Shakespeare as Nick knows about Shakespeare. And, and I took on the to write the first draft of the tragedy section, the Greek tragedy section. And you know, we passed these back and forth. So we divvied it up that way. Um, as far as the poets, I don't remember now, Senator. <laughs> I have no recollection, Senator, as to whether we had any quarrels about poetry or who was going to take what, which poet. Um, you know, where the, the drama was where we had the largest amounts of material to cover, you know, mm -hmm. the, you know, tragic uh, Greek drama and Shakespeare and modern drama realism and such so there we did have a, a lot of territory to, as I said to divvy up but um, you know in poetry we just sailed merrily along from from uh, poem to poem the, the way the uh, volume is uh, is uh, set up you know we, we work by technique mm -hmm. what what uh, what we call the elements of fiction the elements of poetry the elements of drama so uh, we would divide up the various uh, elements in that way. So uh, I'd take symbolism, Nick would take rhyme and meter, and then we'd pass these back and forth. Now, um, when you're writing this book, there's, a, there's actually quite a bit of writing to do here. Yes. A and it seems to me that uh, there's a, a lot of opportunities for you guys to, um, you know, as you're working together and you're passing this stuff back and forth, uh, to, to really... Uh, discover some new stuff about about your Nick and about the the stuff you're working with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, I I discovered you know just on a personal level, I discovered uh, just how much Nick knows about, uh, uh, especially about poetry, um, and uh, it was wonderful to to see what he knew. Uh, a lot of stuff I didn't know. Um, I don't know if it, that was reciprocal, but it's certainly great from my side. To, uh, to see those things emerge. Let's talk about the, the way you've divided up this, this volume of poetry. It's, it's really interesting. Um, you start off with just a section on reading a poem, which mm -hmm. seems uh, important. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can't get anywhere without reading it. Uh, although, I mean, that, that's a dirty little secret that I think a lot of students really don't understand when they first start out. Um, my second wife taught at Phillips Exeter Academy, and um, she re remembers this moment when she first got in the classroom, and one of the, these you know, brilliant Exeter students said to her, what's the DHM factor in this poem, ma'am? And she said, DHM factor? And he said, yeah, deep hidden meaning. I mean, the kids had quantified all this stuff. So what we try to do is, is um, sh demonstrate to them that, first of all, they have to read for pleasure or doesn't matter you know nothing matters if they don't enjoy it just the the whole uh, experience of uh, listening to the language the way they listen to music so we get them we try to get them to say the poems we and you know we have this uh, uh, three dozen video interviews that come along with the textbook um, 
a third of them are poets whom, whom we interview, and they talk about their experience, their first experience of reading, how they read poetry, why they read poetry, and then why they write it, and why they think all of this is important for the students. So we get, uh, you know, Robert Hass, uh, the former poet laureate, and uh, Robert Pinsky, the former poet laureate, and Jane Hirschfield, wonderful uh, California poet, number of people like this, Carolyn Forche, and, and they read the poems of theirs that we include in the text, and then they talk about not just the writing of them, but the way they came to, to poetry. And uh, so they're, they're, they're very persuasive, I think, when they talk about these things. And, and for the student, it's kind of, uh, I think it's an extraordinary experience to hear the, the writer of the poem read the poem and then talk about the poem. So this doesn't just come up you know, from above or out from under the ground. It's a real uh, artifact that someone had to make and you get the maker of that artifact to talk to you about the making of it. And in a format that's really familiar to the students. It's like mm-hmm. seeing a news report on, you know, a traffic accident on the freeway. Yeah. It's the, the same thing. Right. Or, you know, their girlfriend's boob on YouTube. Right? <laughs> I mean, some of these poems are that intimate. Oh, yeah. Well, you also, you go on to a writing about poetry. And I, I love the way that this quote from Pinsky, you have to read the way a cook eats. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's an interesting way to, to read anything, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So poetry is not only uh, good for your soul, it's delicious and nutritious and nurturing and uh, <laughs> helps you keep alive. I mean, that's our position. You know, read this. This will help you stay alive. Now, um, you, you go on to divide this up into a poetry of words, okay, what exactly do you mean by the poetry of words, and how do you select these poets, and, and who of you took on that that task? Well, that that one, the element of uh, you know working with the language itself, uh, obviously, is where you begin. Uh, you know, tables are made of wood, right? <laughs> sure. Cars are made of steel. So we get them to talk about the elemental material of, of the poem, and uh, you know, T.S. Eliot says in 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 Proofrock, yes. The, uh, has that refrain that runs through it. I got to use words when I talk to you, so it's uh, beginning with the. Uh, I, I guess you'd call it an irony that uh, I mean that poor dog of yours that's barking now. <laughs> would that she could speak to us <laughs> in English? Speak to us in English. Uh, I, you know the Greeks thought that the the barbarians who lived around them who didn't speak Greeks barked like dogs. I, 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 that's the origin of the, of the word barbarian. A barbarian is someone who barks like a dog. That really? is, does not speak Greek. So someone who doesn't read poetry, uh, doesn't have the language of his or her people in his or her soul. I mean, you live a life that's less than alive, I think. In the same way that, you know, if you don't listen to music, you miss a certain sense of rhythm and, and, and uh, melody in your life. So, you know, the poor student who doesn't catch on to the importance of poetry, I, I think, lives a life that's slightly impoverished. It's kind of like a vitamin deficiency in some people or a terrible nutritional uh, disaster in others. Rickets of the soul. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you 
another division you have, you talk about uh, the voice, tone, persona, and irony. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad to see irony gets its own whole section. Mm-hmm. Tell us about who you chose for those for those poets and, and why you made those choices. For uh, voice, you know, the way the, the poet speaks uh, to the reader. Uh, we've got an interview with Stephen Dunn, who's a wonderful uh, contemporary poet, talking about... Uh, how he conveys a certain tone by choosing one word as opposed to another. He has a, he has a, a wonderful little poem about Jack and Jill, uh, which, he, uh, which he uses as an example of uh, ironic voice. Uh, let me read it to you. We all know Jack and Jill. Well, this, is, this, this is a poem of Stephen Dunn's called After. Jack and Jill at home together after their fall. The bucket spilled, her knees badly scraped, and Jack, with not even an aspirin for what's broken. We can see the arduous evenings ahead of them, and the need now to pay a boy to fetch the water. Our mistake was trying to do something together, Jill sighs. Jack says, if you'd have let go for once, you wouldn't have come tumbling after. He's in a wheelchair, but she's still an item for the rest of their existence, confined to a little rhyming story. We tell it to our children who laugh, already accustomed to disaster. We'd like to teach them the secrets of knowing how to go too far. But Jack is banging with his soup spoon. Jill's pulling out her hair. Out of decency, we turn away, as if it were possible to escape the drift of our lives, the fundamental business of making do with what's been left us. Wow. I mean, I don't. I, if if someone else has turned a nursery rhyme into such brilliance and intelligence and approaching wisdom, I don't know it. it that's uh, you have just read an exact example as to why we need to read poetry, and also I think why this book. I think this book and the other book fiction are things that the general reader can can really look at and say this is a great way to get reacquainted with the stuff that I turned my nose up. At the time when I was, you know, taking too many bong hits and listening to King Crimson. Right. I mean, I mean as with many things in life, uh, it's not until something's over that we wish it could start again. And and here's a this is a chance for people who may have uh, not remembered to study during their freshman year at college uh, to to take the course in in a time in their life when they really do feel ready to uh, to come to terms with poetry and fiction and drama. And, and because also, too, a lot of the stuff that we're reading, the new books we're reading now, are, are based uh, on, you know, this whole bed of this whole canon of literature. You know, the, they're informed by that. And, and it, being able to read these things and understand these things and have the critical views as well that you put in there gives us a better vision of the kind of stuff that we, you know, we're reading now. And moreover, you've got some perfectly modern novelists in here, Margaret Atwood and Michael Ondaatje. So tell us about choosing their work. Yeah, we've got some modern uh, fiction writers who also write poetry. Um, And uh, I wish we had some more poets who wrote fiction, but they just haven't produced the kind of short stories that are as uh, uh, equivalent in in style and and impact as the the fiction writers who write poetry. and you know we go from the traditional poems all the way to uh, to the contemporary writers, and we try to cut across uh, uh, 
national lines. The multicultural aspect of this book is really astonishing. I thought that the variety of poets that you had in there was was really quite amazing. And it must have taken a lot of research, I mean, to try to pick out the, the best poems of, of world poets. It, it can't be an easy task, especially when they're translated. And talk about the translated work. Yeah, the, that is a, a problem, and, and so you have to make some serious decisions about what you're going to include in translation, translate, what, what you're going to include in translation. Um, but, you know, we try to broaden the American offerings first, uh, bringing in, um, you know, a Chicano poet here and there. Del, uh, Jimmy Del Baca Santiago. Yes. Local uh, from out in Salinas, actually. Right. And, and Gary Soto, who lives up in Berkeley. Um, and 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 some uh, spoken word poets, Leonard Cohen, and and um, Kenneth Carroll. Uh, I love his poems. So what for the white dude who said this ain't poetry? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Lawson and Nada and uh, Miguel Algarin. Uh, so we do try to broaden the the American offerings. Willie Perdomo, wonderful poem called Postcards of El Barrio, and. Uh, one of my favorite poets, Quincy Troop. Uh, his is called Poem Reaching Towards Something. And then we, we bring in a few uh, poets from around the world. Um, and uh, you know, we do try to broaden the normal s- scope of things. We've got a section on, uh, in, on visual poems. Um, actually, I'll read you this uh, poem by this... Uh, Chinese-American poet named Chen Li, which is just about the outer uh, rim of our experimental poetry. The poem is called War Symphony. Uh, He wrote it in uh, 1995, and it's a sound poem. Um, There are two Chinese characters that that you say uh, for most of the poem, and then it ends with a third Chinese character. I'll just say part of it. Ping 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 pong ping ping pong pong ping ping pong pong ping ping pong pong ping pong pong ping pong So you get that back and forth of war and then some kind of resolution. Buttering out. Right. You also do a section on visual poetry and it's so wonderful to see the 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 Blake stuff, to see the Blake's own illuminations of his own poems. Yeah, the Blake section is really beautiful. Um, it, it's sudden, like opening a door into a wonderful uh, live museum. Uh, it really takes advantage of, you know, the the advances you have here in terms of having a four-color format mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, a lot of really sophisticated layout of, of the work, you know, so that it's it's much more visually engaging. And, and poetry is, is something, is a form that I think really, really benefits from the way you present this material in terms of being able to look at it and it, the colors on the pages, the excerpts from, you know, the authors and stuff. Yeah. It really uh, sifts together nicely. Oh, that's good. I'm, uh, I, we're, we're pretty happy with the way it looks. Um, I mean, why does it have to read like a, uh, a law book? about about uh, 
property law. You know, I never thought about that, but that's what those old Norton anthologies yeah. were really like. It was like some kind of bizarre set of laws from a bad universe. Yeah. Well, that, you know, they try to cram in as much as they can, and, and you do want to include as much as you can. But uh, what we try to do is to turn one of those old doorstops into a kind of portal, um, mm -hmm. open a door for the student rather than have them stand in front of a, a shut door, a closed door wondering whether they want to go into the room. Well, I also uh, noticed here that you have, at the end, you have a variety of uh, critical approaches of, of writing about poetry. And it's, you know, this is something that I don't necessarily expect to see in an American textbook, is a, is a selection of Marxist criticism. Well, you know, we try to do the major critical perspectives um, so that the instructors can uh, talk about that with the students, or not. But, you know, for us, the main... Uh, the, the main uh, journey that we take is through the various forms of poetry um, and uh, try to bring students to work that we consider utterly beautiful, lead them to it, uh, maybe prop open their eyes with toothpicks for a while, but <laughs> or just have them see that this is what they need to be thinking about and talking about and saying. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, to finally find a poem that you want to say to someone, I think would be a wonderful thing. You know, when you when you have poems that you want to say all the time, um, it's it, it's a wonderful thing. It's it's like learning how to play a piece of music that you love. Why don't you read this poem you've got marked there, right there? Sex without love is that what you want? Actually, no. I was. Um, it's a longer poem that I got in front of me. Robert Hess's. Um, Dragonflies mating. I don't know. I'll read it and you can edit. Uh, maybe you just want to include part of it because it is quite long, but I love it. Dragonflies mating, Robert Hass. One. The people who lived here before us also loved these high mountain meadows on summer mornings. They made their way up here in easy stages when heat began to dry the valleys out, following the berry harvest probably in the pine buds climbing and making camp and gathering, then breaking camp and climbing and making camp and gathering a few miles a day. They sent out the children to dig up bulbs of the mariposa lilies that they liked to roast at night by the fire where they sat talking about how this year was different from last year, told stories, knew where they were on earth from the names, owl moon, bear moon, gooseberry moon. Two. Jaime de Angulo, 1934, was talking to a Channel Island Indian in a Santa Barbara bar. You tell me how your people said the world was made. Well, the guy said, Coyote was on the mountain and he had to pee. Wait a minute, Jaime said. I was talking to a pomo the other day and he said, Red Fox made the world. They say Red Fox, the guy shrugged. We say Coyote. So he had to pee and he didn't want to drown anybody. So he turned toward the place where the ocean would be. Wait a minute, Jaime said. If there were no people yet, how could he drown anybody? The Channel N, you got a funny look on his face. You know, he said, when I was a kid, I wondered about that. And I asked my father. We were living up towards Santa Inez. He was sitting on a bench in the yard, shaving down fence posts with an axe. And I said, how come Coyote was worried about people when he had to pee and there were no people? The guy laughed. My old man looked up at me with his funny smile and said, you know, when I was a kid, I wondered about that. Three. Thinking about that story just now, early morning heat, first day in the mountains, I remembered stories about sick Indians and in the same thought standing on the free throw line. 
St. Raphael's Parish, where the northernmost of the missions had been, was founded as a hospital. It was named for the angel in the scriptures who healed the blind man with a fish he laid across his eyes. I wouldn't mind being that age again, hearing those stories. Eyes turned upward toward the young nun in her white, fresh-smelling, immaculately laundered robes. The Franciscan priests who brought their faith in God across the Atlantic brought with the Baroque statues and metalwork crosses and elaborately embroidered cloaks influenza and syphilis and the coughing disease, which is why we settled in almost empty California. There were drawings in the Mission Museum of the long, dark wards full of small brown people, wasted, coughing into blankets, the saintly Franciscan fathers moving patiently among them. It would, Sister Marietta said, have broken your hearts to see it. They meant so well, she said, and such a terrible thing came here with their love. And I remembered how I hated it after school because I loved basketball practice more than anything on earth that I never knew if my mother was going to show up well into one of those weeks of drinking she disappeared into and humiliate me in front of my classmates with her bright, confident eyes and slurred, though carefully pronounced words, and the appalling impromptu sets of mismatched clothes she was given to when she had the dim idea of making a good impression in that state. Sometimes from the gym floor with its sweet, heady smell of varnish, I'd see her in the entryway looking for me, and I'd bounce the ball two or three times, study the orange rim as if it were, which it was the true level of the world, the one sure thing the power in my hands could summon. I'd bounce the ball once more, feel the grain of the leather in my fingertips, and shoot. It was a perfect thing. It was almost like killing her. Four. When we say mother in poems, we usually mean some woman in her late 20s or early 30s trying to raise a child. We use this particular noun to secure the pathos of the child's point of view and to hold her responsible. Five, if you're afraid now, fear is a teacher. Sometimes you thought that nothing could reach her, nothing can reach you. Wouldn't you rather sit by the river, sit on the dead bank, deader than winter where all the roots gape? Six, this morning in the early sun, steam rising from the pond the color of smoky topaz, a pair of delicate copper-red needle-fine insects are mating in the unopened crown of a shasta daisy just outside your door. The green flower heads look like wombs or the upright supplicant bulbs of a vegetal pre-erection. The insect lovers seem to be transferring the cosmos into each other by attaching at the tail, holding utterly still and quivering intently. I think, on what evidence, that they are different from us, that they mate and are done with mating. They don't carry all this half-mated longing up out of childhood and then go looking for it everywhere. And so I think they can't wound each other the way we do. They don't go through life dizzy or groggy with their hunger, kill with it, smear it on everything, though it's perhaps also true that nothing happens to them quite like what happens to us. When the blue-backed swallow dips swiftly toward the green pond, and the pond's green and blue reflected swallow marries at a moment in the reflected sky, and the heart goes out to the end of the rope it's been throwing into abyss after abyss, and the singing shimmers from every color the morning has risen into. My insect instructors have stilled. They're probably stuck together in some bliss and minute pulse of after-longing evolution worked out to suck the last juice of the world into the receiver body. They can't separate, probably, until it's done. That's a wonderful piece of poetry. Yeah. It really covers a, a huge range of experience, doesn't it? No, yeah. History, I mean, history of California, the history of America, uh, 
early life among the Indians, life in the mountains. Mythos of the Indians. Yeah. Um, and the way nature can instruct us and see our differences Mothers between and us and nature and our similarities. Yes, and childhood, yeah. the sorrow of that was, being uh, a child and how it affects your adult life. Now, how many lines is that poem? Well, it's, it's uh, a little over 100 lines. So it's a long, very long poem. It's a long poem, but it's an amazing amount of writing in a compact space, which is uh, the real power of poetry, as you said. It's uh, the 18 lines about a beautiful woman who's died. Yeah, or even book. fewer lines. I mean, there's some wonderfully beautiful short poems in here. I mean, uh, you know, William Carlos Williams, so much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, I mean, there's some wonderfully romantic poetry in here, too. I love, uh, you know, Byron's... Uh, poems. Um, he's got a great uh, Dear John letter, or Dear Joan letter. In here. Dear Joan letter, oh really? So we'll go no more roving so late into the night, though the heart be still as loving and the moon be still as bright, for the sword wears out the sheath and the soul wears out the breast and the heart must pause to breathe and love itself have rest. Though the night was made for loving and the day returns too soon, yet we'll go no more roving by the light of the moon. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> well, the woman who got that was uh, must have been the most one of the most fortunate women in the history yeah, of this world. Every woman who uh, hooked up with Byron was both fortunate and unfortunate. And, that, and then, you know, the, another beautiful poem about loss is uh, one of my favorites, Elizabeth Bishop's poem, One Art. It's a villanelle. May I read it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. One art, Elizabeth Bishop. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, except the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing further, losing faster, places and names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. And look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it like disaster. Wow. I mean, you know, the way somebody takes, um, you know, 20 lines of maybe, you know, five words each stanza and, and uh, makes us recognize our own human strength and frailty and conjure up in ourselves uh, that place where memory and art intersect, where our lives seem to be relived in a poem that, by someone we've never met and will never meet, who might have lived a thousand years ago or last week, uh, intersects with our own. It's extraordinary. I've been speaking with Alan Chews. His latest novel is To Catch the Lightning. His newest book is a collection of travel essays titled A Trance After Breakfast, and he's also the author of uh, three 
textbooks for the canon of English, English literature, literature, craft, and voice. Thank you for joining me, Alan. My pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.